your prayer, and one we're focusing on because of this holiday, is the element of thanksgiving. Psalm 100 tells us that we should enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. I don't, I don't know when I'm going to pass through those gates. I don't know when that day's coming, uh, but I'm getting more and more eager for it. Uh, I got a lot of living to do, but I'm more and more eager to actually step in and to pass through the gates that Jesus has opened for us through his sacrifice. And uh, when that day comes, I don't want to be out of practice. So uh, to help us to be more ready for that, uh, we have some questions, uh, about nine questions that are just prompts. That's all they are. They will be up on the screen here in a moment. And we're going to ask you to take this prayer time to get into groups about, oh, three or four. No hard rules. If you do five, you know, that's okay. And uh, don't work through every single question. <laughs> But uh, just use those as prompts to ask someone else in your group, you know, so that that gives them a chance to respond and to think about, well, what are some things that we're thankful for? Uh, maybe we don't think of the tough stuff in life, and how should we be thankful then? Uh, that's, that's a real challenge for us. But why don't I just encourage you to have that time to share that with one another and then to pray for one another in your group. And then I will close uh, after a certain allotted time so that we give Evan enough time to preach today. All right? Does that sound good? Sounds simple? So go ahead and group up in four, three, four, five maybe if you need to. And uh, just work through those things and talk about asking one another, uh, what are we really thankful for?
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the many good things that you bring into our lives, the common graces that we take for granted, the sun rising on our faces, the, uh, the moisture that comes to nourish our ground, um, another day of life, Lord, another day of opportunity. Uh, Father, thank you for this fellowship. that we have here in this place, the sound of voices. Be lifting in our life because we can't. Uh, we can't carry those things. So, Lord, we are thankful because in suffering, it's where we're most most bound to Jesus who suffered so much for us. So God, in everything, we begin with gratitude and thankfulness for your love for us while we were still sinners, that you sent your son to die in our place, to pay the price that we could not pay, and then to rise again so that we would have the hope of rising up with him. So, Lord, I pray for this body. I pray for this community of faith here, that, God, you would reveal yourself to us, that you would make your love, your grace, the hope, the peace, all that you created us to experience but has been blocked by sin, that, that God, you would remove that barrier and you would give us a fuller realization of who you are so that each and every day, no matter how beat down we might feel when life is kicking us in the teeth, that, that Lord, we would look up and we, we could say we are thankful that you are with us and that you will not leave us nor forsake us. That, God, you will see us through whatever it is we might be facing. And not by our strength, but by the strength of your spirit that you provide, God. So, Lord... Teach us to see beyond our circumstances. Help us to walk by faith. Help us, Lord, to understand that, that we're just spiritual beings having a human experience and that you're here and you are with us to see us through it. Lord, thank you that the work you began in us in Christ Jesus, you will bring to completion. So now, Lord, we give you this time. We thank you for our fellowship. We now, Lord, eagerly look to hear from your word. We ask, God, that you would speak to us and uh, that, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. Empower your servant, Evan, as he preaches today. And, Lord, may he be filled with joy as he gets to serve in that capacity in your kingdom. And may your kingdom increase and may the glory of our Lord uh, increase along with that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In that, and as I put my chair back, I'll give you a few seconds here. Catch up and adjust as we transition now from prayer time to hearing from God's word. And so thanks for leaning into that time, you guys. Thank you for moving for being so um, welcoming to the people around you and willing to talk and to interact with one another in that. Um, and now, 
Um, we're going to continue on in our series that we've been going through for the last few weeks, where we are looking at the life of Abraham, um, considering how it is that we can grow in faith, how it is that we can grow up. Because we recognize that whether we've known Jesus for 30 minutes or 30 years, and all that comes with that. And so, of course, you know, if you're a guest with us here this morning, I'm just thrilled that you're here. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. If you are a guest and your friend brought you to church this morning, it's kind of funny because your friend is not glad you're here. They're probably thinking like, really, I bring this person and you're going to talk about circumcision? Like, what on earth? Um, but don't worry, because honestly, I promise you that in this very uncomfortable story, and in this very strange um, teaching that we're going to read, God has so much to speak to us about this. Um, and we really are going to see how we can understand the Bible, the New Testament, um, the way that the Apostle Paul worked in his mission to the Gentiles, through this teaching here. And of course, like if you really are new to the Bible and not quite familiar with this idea, if it still doesn't make sense to you afterwards, um, we'll do a practical demonstration later. Um, so don't worry, we'll be able to uh, make that <laughs> make sense to you. You know, before I was a pastor, I did work in a meat department, so I'm pretty good with the blade. I bet I could give it a shot. Um, and so, and then just so you're aware, to give you a bit of a heads up, um, this is actually going to be our last week in the series on Abraham, because next week is Advent. We're starting Advent next week. Christmas is on its way. And so it's actually after this chapter that the Abraham series is going to be cut off, and we'll do a little series in, Ab in Advent for a little bit, um, and what that will be. And so the question, I've got so many that I cut out that went, um, yeah. But anyway, so the question that I really want us to ask, that we're going to really be considering today, is where do we get our identity from? Um, and do you know who you are? And that's kind of the question I want us to ponder before we get into Genesis chapter 17. Is, who are we? Where do we get our identity from? Now, someone once said, always be yourself, unless you can be Batman. In which case, you should be Batman. Um, but the fact is that none of us, except for, of course, like David Carter, um, can be Batman. So how can we be ourselves? And this is actually a question that a lot of people have been asking for a long time. And a question that I think is just a universal question that people ask as citizens in this fallen world. Who am I? Do I fit in? Do I belong? What am I to do? Um, I came across a story a while back um, about French soldiers after World War I who, because of the shell shock and the traumatic experience that they had, they were suffering from severe amnesia where they no longer knew their own name, who they were, who their family was, where they lived, any of that. And so they decided to hold what they called an identification rally, um, where in Paris they invited the entire nation to come together, and all of the people who had lost family members in the war, but who they couldn't confirm were dead yet, but who were just MIA, they came to France um, to try to identify these loved ones. And they would walk these soldiers up onto stage in, in front of a bunch of people, and one by one these soldiers would walk up to the microphone, and they would just ask, does anyone know who I am? And it's the saddest thing that they had to do that. But hundreds of people were reunited with their family um, in that moment. They had to ask, who am I? And I don't think it's just the shell-shocked who really suffer from that identity crisis. I think this is a human problem in our fallen world. 
a human problem in our fallen world that we're all searching for identity. Who are we? What is our purpose? And one of the places that people actually turn to in order to find their identity is, unsurprisingly, Google. Um, people searching who am I or am I fill in the blank is actually very, very common. Millions of people do this. Has anyone ever searched am I fill in the blank before? Anyone willing to admit? No one willing to admit it. Um, but I know some of you likely are because on the uh, y-axis there, you have that in millions. So those numbers, 50, 7,500, that is in uh, millions there. And this is a chart of Google searches beginning with uh, am I fill in the blank from 2004 until 2021. And this is very common. Um, since 2004, the most common searches are am I gay, straight, am I in the wrong job, am I Democrat or Republican, am I black, am I crazy, am I a genius, right, someone has to, you have to search that, I don't know, um, am I sick, am I not a human being, is actually a really common search. Now, it was between 2009 and 2013 that am I not a human being just skyrocketed, and there were like 15 million searches per day in the U.S. alone, and researchers were really puzzled, like why has all of a sudden everyone questioned whether or not they're a human being? Then they figured out it was actually a Lil Wayne song, um, and so they weren't questioning their humanity, they were just trying to listen um, to Lil Wayne there. Um, but, <laughs> but people going to Google to figure out who am I? And I think it's common that all of us would ask these questions, and I think it's even common for Christians to ask, you know, am I saved? Am I part of God's family? I am saved now, what am I supposed to do now? What am I responsible for? And these questions are things that are asked a lot. And in this chapter, this chapter on the topic of circumcision, believe it or not, it's actually about identity. It's really answering this question. It's showing us through the life of Abram and, Ab and Sarah here that it's God's work in Abram's life through which this question's answered, that he is marked as God's person, as God's family, and we see God giving them this identity of God's family. And really what we see short, up until this point, bless you, in the story of God, he started off with, of course, Adam and Eve, and they were made in human likeness, they were made to be the image of God, and God started with this family in order that they would rule the earth, that they would spread out, that they would multiply, and in doing so, that they would give glory to God. And that went really well for about two chapters. And then in chapter three, humanity sins, the image is fractured, the purpose is fractured. Um, the original blessing to be fruitful and multiplied is now cursed. The family is now cursed. So when Adam and Eve are supposed to live together and be this picture of God's love in the Trinity, of Jesus' love for God, God's love for Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and that beautiful Trinity, now what it tells us in the curse is that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And the family is cursed. And then this original mandate to be fruitful and multiply is cursed as well. Now there will be difficulty in childbearing. There will be pains in childbirth. And humanity's identity as image bearers of God has now become difficult. And then what you have throughout Genesis is just story after story of these curses being played out. Story after story of human beings not quite understanding their identity, their purpose. And it kind of comes to a head in Genesis 
chapter 11, where these people, 10 and 11, where these people who were supposed to multiply and spread the earth for God's glory decided instead, what if we all just live in one place, we build a big tower just to glorify ourselves, the Tower of Babel. So God scatters those people, says, no, we're not doing this, scatters those people, and out of those people scattered, he picks one family. And so that was, those people were scattered in chapter 11, and then in chapter 12 is where we started our series. God picks one family, Abram and Sarai, and it's from them that we're told he's going to be bringing back this blessing to humanity, bringing back humanity to their identity, of God's image bearers, and of a blessing to do this thing. And we've been following as they grow in faith. Um, and we're told from story number one that we read from Abram and Sarah that, you know, they were going to live in a certain place and God would dwell there, that they would eventually have God's dwelling place there and people could come from all over to be in God's presence and that they would have descendants that would eventually lead to Jesus and that would be a blessing to the entire world. Um, but what we see through their story of God restoring their identity is story after story of them failing to trust God, story after story of them really struggling to live into this identity that God's giving them. Um, the first story we saw is that when famine hit, Abram didn't trust God in this place he was supposed to. But then she was proud of being pregnant, and they got mad at her for being pregnant, and they oppressed and abused the slave. She ran off. And Jesus appeared to her, to Hagar, in the desert, and said, go back to Abram and Sarah with this message that I have for you, that Jesus told her, I'm the God who hears, I'm the God who sees. And I trust in him. And so that was right before this. And now we're getting into chapter 17, where 24 years have passed as we have followed Abraham's life. Um, they don't have any kids yet. This promise that they would have a mighty nation is not there yet. And they have this little problem where now they have a son through Hagar, who's now 13 years old, that Egyptian they mistreated. Um, and God makes it clear here that he is going to bless them, but it's going to be through their family that this heir will come. And so if you found your way to Genesis 17, um, we're going to take this story in two chunks. We're going to read a pretty good chunk of it right here. And then we'll stop, we'll come back, we'll see what God has to say to us. And so follow along in Genesis 17, verse 1. So when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. This is like a bit of a rebuke after the last story. Um, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So see kind of the Genesis, be fruitful and multiply language here. Um, and then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. He says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep. 
between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with all your money shall surely be circumcised. And so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Nice play of words, God. He has broken my covenant. Now skip down to verse 22. We're going to come back to the other section later. Um, When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among them of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were all circumcised with him. Okay, so this, in this chapter here, is the institution of this practice we know of as circumcision. And it really is important, and it really is key for our understanding of actually, like, the whole Bible. Um, And the purpose of circumcision really is twofold. There really are two main purposes of it. Um, And the first purpose is judgment. It's a cutting away of the flesh, as we're going to see. And the second purpose, really, is it's a promise. It's a mark. It's a symbol of a promise. This is really the purpose that we're going to see here. Now, this first purpose, the purpose of judgment and of cutting away of the flesh. Uh, One of the things that you should know is throughout the Bible, the flesh um, is always a symbol of the part of you that wants to sin, the part of you that wants to go against God's ways, to live contrary to God's word. And so the idea of cutting the flesh is separating yourself from fleshly desires. Um, You've heard of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Well, we find the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. And I don't know if you noticed this when you've read through the book of Galatians, but the entire book of Galatians is all about circumcision. Um, You, like, cannot get through two or three sentences without it talking about it. Um, And that was one of the main reasons that Paul wrote the letter of Galatians, was a whole debate and a fight over it. Um, And the fruit of the Spirit are found in Galatians chapter 5. And in Galatians chapter 5, right before the fruit of the Spirit, Paul talks about basically what he would call the fruit of the flesh. So there's fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the flesh. And he says that you'll essentially find yourselves either walking in the fruit of the Spirit or walking in the fruit of the flesh these fleshly desires. So that's why throughout the Bible, you will hear, you'll and in chapter 16. He had just sinned with the flesh, right? Um, they, he had just sinned taking a second wife with Hagar, abused her in other ways. And so here, immediately after this story, where the flesh was used for that sin, now God is showing that very same flesh here that was used in that sin, essentially the judgment is very visible, 
where a part of that is cut off, right? Because central to Abraham's identity, central to his purpose, was he was going to be a blessing for the nations. He was going to be a blessing for the nations. That's why he was there. But in the previous story, this foreigner, Egyptian slave, he was not a blessing to. He was a curse. And so because of that, God makes Abram cut off a piece of the flesh. Can I get what he was doing there? Um, It's as if God is saying, this part of your body, essentially like the fleshly desires, needs to go, needs to go. That you have an identity and a purpose from me, and you've misused it. You've misused it. And this isn't new to God's actions throughout the book of Genesis um, so far. In the beginning of Genesis, you've heard of Noah and the flood, right? That very fun children's story of everybody on the earth dying. Um, where it says, actually, it uses the exact same language to say that God cut off humanity in the flood. It's actually the water was cutting off this other's humanity. And it's the exact same word that's used here. And so that was an act of judgment, of divine judgment. And so here, when God brings in this image, this practice, it's a sign of divine judgment. It's a sign of divine judgment against the fleshly desires of our hearts fleshly desires that are contrary to God. So one, sign of judgment. But it's also a promise. It's also a mark of the promise. Because it really is a sign of God's mercy towards Abram. Because it's not all the way cut off. Um, It's just a mark. And so this also serves as a reminder of God's promise to bless And we're told in the chapter that we just read that it's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign of the promise that God made with him. And in every covenant throughout the Bible, in every deal, um, they always have these tokens or they have these symbols. They have these marks of a covenant. Um, You know, with marriage, we have wedding rings. That's like the token, the symbol of the covenant. When you graduate from college, you get a nice piece of paper. Um, You buy a house, you get like a really thick stack of paper. Um, And those are like the tokens of the covenant. With Noah's story and the covenant that God made with him, the rainbow was that token, right? Every time it rains, you're going to see this beautiful, colorful rainbow. And even when you see the rain, that sign of God's judgment, and you're afraid, you're reminded by the rainbow of the promise that God made, the promise of his mercy. And so here, that's what God's saying. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to include blessing. It's going to be a great covenant, and you're going to get a token. You're going to get a symbol. And I'm sure Abram's going, awesome, that's so cool. What's the symbol going to be? And God goes, drop your drawers. Um, (laughs) But it makes total sense when it comes to the promise that God gave Abram, doesn't it? Because if you think about the promise that he had, the promise that they would have offspring, that they would be a family that would display God's character through the world, this is God marking the same part through which that promise and that family is going to come, and God saying that this part of your body is mine. It's marked by me. I'm in control here. Um, and to try to say that, you know, as like reverently as possible, that any time Abram and Sarah would be looking forward to the fulfillment of this promise, they would see this mark. They'd remember the promise. They now have a very tangible, visible reminder of the promise that God has made. A mark for them to see that God will do what he has promised to do. 
they would have been reminded of that. So that's, that's the purpose of the snippety-snip here. It's to identify Abraham as God's guy, as God's family, sign of the divine judgment, the cutting away of the flesh, but the marking, the promise, the promise that what I have told you will happen, will indeed happen. So you don't need to seek this promise the way the rest of the world does, right? That part of the flesh cut off. Instead, just remember that I made this deal with you. That you are to come to the God who sees and hears and ask for what you want instead. So that's what God gives him here. Gives him this identity. But one of the important things that we have to realize here is that it wasn't just for Abraham, was it? Um, Look back at verse 12. wasn't only him, but this covenant, this sign, this mark, his mission to the Gentiles, for understanding all the fights that the early church had around this, is that it was always intended to be a way to bring the foreigner, to bring the Gentile in. But we're going to see it wasn't always thought of that way. But that's the point here, that this was God affirming that you, my guy, you're my family, and this is a sign that you can see that. And it really is important to see that Ishmael here is included in that um, because, one, um, God is saying, well, Ishmael is not going to be the, the son of promise and the heir. You are going to have your own because I think for God to say, okay, yeah, we'll work with Ishmael would basically be to support that sin that just took place in chapter 16. So God says, no, I'm not going to support that sin against Hagar. Instead, I'm going to bless him on his own, but you will have your own miracle child from your family, from your family, as you're supposed to be there. Um, and at first, that does kind of sound like a bummer for Ishmael. It's like, oh, sorry, kid. Um, I know you didn't have a say in it, but you just have no identity here. Um, but what's clear is that he does get an identity. Um, he will be blessed, and he will multiply, and he's given that same sign, that promise, that blessing as well. And it's been made very clear through here that the promise is not just for this little family. It's for this big family here. And that's the little section that we read there. And now we're going to read the other section that we just skipped in verse 15. And one of the things to notice that it's going to be harder to notice because of the way I skipped it, now we're coming back to it, but there's actually some symmetry in this chapter where it starts out with basically there's circumcision, Abraham is named, circumcision, then the same exact speech about Sarah's name, and then it ends with circumcision here. Because it's showing how this is all kind of part of the promise. It's all part of the marking. And God had marked Abraham, Um, with that practice that we've talked about. But that marking probably shouldn't be, like, shown to everyone, right? That's like a mark that probably should be covered up. And so the question is, well, if this is a mark that is going to be showing Abraham's purpose as a blessing to the nations, why is it a private thing? Which is the reason that 
God also changed his name. And then here, we're going to see God changing Sarah's name as well. God's changing their public identity too. Because if this is for everyone, not just their family, in private, God changes their public identity too. Um, so in verse 15, God had already changed Abraham's name from Abram to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, as for, your, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, right? He's like, Ishmael's my boy, I love him. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring. So he's saying here, I'm not going to bless that line that came from the sin in the same way, because this is about covenant. This is about displaying this. Um, but you're going to have the son Isaac, which the name Isaac means laughter. Um, so the question is, was Abraham laughing out of disbelief? Or was it like, wow, that'll be amazing? You decide. Um, but then Abraham's like, but, but what about Ishmael? And God says, as for Ishmael, verse 20, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and, and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So this, this is the place where God changed Sarah's name. And, and God, in this chapter, changed both of their names, which is really significant. Because Abram, the name that he had going into this, means either my father is exalted or exalted father. Um, and most scholars say it means my father is exalted because it's likely and it's told in traditions that Abram's father was a pagan priest. And so it was about his father being a priest of this other Babylonian religion. And now it's changed to Abraham, which means a father of a multitude of nations, the father of many nations. This is a promise because, as we see, um, he isn't that yet. He's 99 years old, and he only has one son from a servant. But this is implying the promise. It's applying the promise. Um, and then Sarai gets her name changed, too. Because Sarai meant princess, which is cute. That's sweet. But probably in your 80s and 90s, that's maybe a little demeaning and not exactly what she wanted. <laughs> um, and so now it's changed to Sarah which means noblewoman or queen. Um, and this is showing the promise that she is going to have a kingdom. Uh, her children are going to be powerful. They're going to rule. She's essentially, she grows up there from princess to queen. And the way that God changed their name is actually really significant too. Um, because both of them basically just got H's. You notice that? He just like stuck an H in there. Um, and the H is actually really significant. In Hebrew, the meaning of each letter is unique. Um, the spelling of each letter is unique. And even the shape has meaning as well. It's like, to give you an example of like the spelling of the letter, like the English letter H, like what does that word A-I-T-C-H mean? Nothing. It literally means nothing. That's not a word. English doesn't work like that. But the Hebrew word He, which is just their letter H, they wouldn't say H, they'd say He, 
That's the same word for breath. That's the Hebrew word for breath. And he is also how you would say God. Um, the name Yahweh, which out of fear and reverence for saying that name, oftentimes you wouldn't actually even say the full name. Instead, a shorthand version is you would just say he. And the shape of the letter, um, if you notice, it's supposed to kind of look like a door. The shape of the H is supposed to be a door. And that's because the literal translation of the word for mouth in Hebrew was door of lips. Um, so you eat Thanksgiving through your lip door, um, which is not the way that we view it today, but it makes total sense. Um, and so this is the way that God changed their names here, is he added this H. Basically, he added himself. He stuck himself, stuck God, Yahweh, the breath, the spirit into their lives, and he marked them in a way for everyone to see that these people followers of God. These people, followers of Yahweh, and then their name meanings are significant as well. And so you see in two different cases here, God giving them this physical mark and showing that it's not just for them and their little family, but it's also for all of those in their household, and then changing their name, changing their public identity, making it clear that this is for all to see. This is for all to see. But one of the ironic things about this, that this is a really important story here at the beginning of the Bible, but as you play the story out between here and Jesus, you see that this is not exactly how things would play out, that instead of the act of circumcision being a way for the nations to be included in and to be a blessing for the nations, instead it kind of became just a clear boundary and a clear sign of who is in and who is out not a means for which people to be brought in. This, it became a way to keep others out. I mean, that's actually one of the biggest fights then that you see the early church having in the New Testament, is the early church was looking back at the Old Testament and saying, this was supposed to include others, and we've used it to exclude others. People were saying, well, this is just a sign that I'm part of Abraham's lineage, and the early Christians were saying, yeah, 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 but the entire point of it was to show that God's plan from the beginning was a big growing family, include all the nations. And so, what I think this means for us to understand is if that was the point in the beginning, then really it's the same for us. Um, but if circumcision was about judgment and promise, and this whole idea of Abraham here is about judgment and promise, then our faith and our spiritual circumcision about judgment and promise as well. And on the topic of judgment, really, it's about how Christ took our judgment and how we are now free from the judgment of God. See, Colossians is another one of those books that was actually written all about circumcision. Um, now that you understand this, reading Romans, Colossians, and Galatians will make a lot more sense. Because we avoid this topic, as you probably know, but if you don't understand this topic, the books of Romans, Colossians, Colossians and Galatians make no sense because that's all they're talking about. But in Colossians, Paul is going on and he's basically saying that Christ is our circumcision. And he says this in Colossians chapter 2. He says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off or cut off when you were circumcised by Christ, when you were saved. 
having been buried with him in baptism, so that's like the replacement um, activity that you get to do, the physical activity there, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So he's pointing out here that our fleshly sinful nature was solved by Jesus being fully cut off, being killed. He was completely cut off for our salvation, for our justification, for the penalty, the punishment that we were to receive, the judgment of God that would be on us. Christ took that. And then in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, Paul says this, and Paul was really fired up about the fact that the early Christians were keeping, or they were making the Gentiles also practice circumcision, that it wasn't about faith. They were saying, well, you have to do these works of the law. You have to do these things in order to be in the family. Paul said, no, Jesus did all that. And so in Galatians chapter 5, Paul is fired up, and he says this. He says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So you can't just do one part of it. You've got to keep the whole thing if you're going to be saved by the law. He said, you are severed from Christ. Who would, who, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You are only saved by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in verse 12, he says, as for those agitators, those saying that you have to be saved by these acts, he says, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Paul's mad. He's mad about this. And what he's showing is that we are brought into the family of God by salvation, by Christ. It's not these acts that have to be done. But the entire purpose was for Christ to bring others under his wing. That the judgment that we face because of our sin is taken on Christ. And it's also a promise. And really in light of the promise that it is to us, well, the responsibility that we have then as part of God's family is that this promise is to be shared with others, right? That if circumcision was a way for the illegitimate son to be brought into the family, then the responsibility for the members of the family is to bring others into the family. To tell those who would be deemed as the illegitimate son is no. There's a way in. There's a way for you to belong. Bring those who are viewed as outside in. And as you read through the Gospels, there's this kind of interesting thing where at the start of Jesus' ministry, he only in instructed the disciples to just go to the lost sheep of Israel. Just go to the Jews at the beginning. And whenever he would have encounters with other people groups, he kind of like gave them the cold shoulder, or he said some really confusing lines to them. And he was kind of quiet. And it wasn't until the very end that he told the disciples to go to all nations. To go to all nations there. And in the book of Acts, one of the things that you see very early on is God expanding the family of Abraham, the family of God. And if you're familiar with the Pentecost story, um, on Pentecost, we're told that people from 15 different countries were in Israel on pilgrimage and had this encounter with the Holy Spirit. And we're told that when the Holy Spirit fell 
that all of these people, when the disciples were telling the story about Jesus, that all of these people heard them in their own languages, right? And it's kind of like Babel all over again. That fracturing that happened at the Tower of Babel, where they were trying to make a name for themselves and only have one language here. Now God is saying, okay, well, all these people from all around the globe, you don't even need one language. You don't need to glorify yourselves. You glorify me, right? It's this picture of a big extended family again. And those from 15 nations um, that are all named there, the interesting thing is we get that, we get a list here. You know, they heard the sound. A crowd came together. This wind rushed through the house in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And then it goes on to list all the different nations that they came from. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, uh, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, um, and it says both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, some of your versions might say Ishmaelites, and we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And actually, all of those people groups that are listed are all kind of the ethnographic groups that would have lived all around the Tower of Babel as well. At that scattering that had taken place again, God is regathering, making it clear that the entire point was not just only one family amongst all of them, this exclusive little group, but it was actually for all humanity to be restored to that identity, image bearers of God, a family of God. And so when the people are all asking, like, what does this mean? We just heard the story about Jesus in our own language. Peter stands up and he says, Basically, fellow Israelites, like, we killed Jesus. We killed our family member here. Um, and what you see then is the family growing. Because we killed him, but he died for us. He died so that we could all be included. And he actually did that so the whole world could be included there. And as you follow the story in the book of Acts, you'll see the first Gentile, the first other person that's included in the story, has to be included very dramatically. It's Cornelius, this centurion and peter has to have a dream to show him like hey he's okay he don't call what i have called clean unclean so he has this conversation with the roman centurion and a gentile is now part of the family and then as you follow along one of the other first gentiles in acts 8 is what we're told is a powerful official in charge of the queen of ethiopia's finances and he gives his life to christ then in acts chapter 16 Paul has a dream to go to Asia, that people in Asia Minor want to believe. And he goes there. People believe. The family of God spreads to Asia. And then in Acts chapter 16, we have Lydia, who's a wealthy, generous, hospitable woman. She becomes the first believer in Jesus in all of Europe. And the family of God is spreading. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, which was like the big fight over circumcision, whether Gentiles can be included or if they are, can they be circumcised? And they're trying to make it about this isolation and about this unique family. They come to the decision that, no, we're not under that yoke, that bondage anymore. It's not just this exclusive little thing. It's for all to be included. It's for all who would believe in Jesus to be included in this family. So in Acts chapter 15, they make the decision that Gentiles don't need to go through that operation. They can be part of the family because of their faith. Because of their faith. So these people we're tempted to identify, okay, who's included, who's part of the family in God, who's out, based on this worldly, visible thing, 
are told no. It's only about faith. It's only about God's grace. See through faith. This happens. And I think for us, we have to take that responsibility as well. Um, For those of us, Christ has been our circumcision. He has cut away the flesh of our hearts. We have to consider that great responsibility now. That the responsibility of the task, the purpose of it from the beginning, was to extend the family of God. Tell the outsiders there's a way for them to be included. That what was once viewed as exclusive only for you, you follow A, B, C, and D. All of that has been done by Christ. And simply through the reception, the sacrifice, his resurrection, you can enter in and be part of the family and belong here. And it took the disciples to have the Holy Spirit blow wind to blow the doors open and then speak in all these different languages and bring all these people for them to see that. But we have to see here, we have this identity. We have this mark. We have this promise from God. So our job is to extend the family, to reach out and show because of Christ, you can be welcomed in. They too can be part of God's family. So let's pray and we'll continue on in worship. So Father God, uh, we just pause now and just consider your words to us. And we just recognize this is such a a confusing and in many ways uncomfortable topic, but we just praise you for being a God um, who has worked throughout history <clears throat> to continue to just give us this message of Christ. Would you continue to just make Jesus front and center in our hearts and minds because of this? Um, would we be able to see truly how, because of the, the punishment, the penalty that Christ took for us, our flesh has been cut away, um, that we are made new men and women given this gift of identity as your sons and daughters and to follow you and to be a blessing to the nations. And so God, would you help us to live into that? Would you help us to see this high and holy calling we have to be a blessing to others? That a big step in our growth in faith is seeing that it's not just about us, but it's about others. So would you just continue to write that message on our hearts and minds? And so we now, um, we just turn to you in praise. So Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray.
So we'll start eating at about noon. And so 